This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you again, Chris. We've strung together quite a few episodes in a row here where it's Kurt and Chris. I, I, I like this trend. I was going to say it was a, an eventful week here in the insecurity space. Uh, a once in a year kind of event came and went. And, and for those folks listening out there, it may surprise you. This is not some Supreme Court decision. This is not some large SEC case. This is the almost annual matchup between the Richmond Spiders and the St. Bonaventure Bonnies in Division One basketball with the NCAA. Kurt, I know you That's were at right. the game. Uh, I a was. Happier than I was with the result as both our alma maters played each other. I went home very happy from, from that <laughs> game. We haven't got the better of the Bonnies very often recently, so it was nice to get a home win. Continued undefeated run at home this year for the Spiders, so, so watch out. The spiders are nothing to mess with. A little bit unfortunate I didn't see you and the kids on the Jumbotron watching the feed up here in Western New York. But maybe <laughs> next time, you know, they'll dance enough for a free pizza or whatever comes along there. I'll tell them they need to work on their moves. <laughs> anyway, but we are, it's good to be back with you again. I'm actually recording in the middle of a storm that has me in an alternate location. That's right. Uh, so apologies, <laughs> listeners, if my quality isn't as good as usual, or if it is as good as usual, I guess that depends on your perspective. <laughs> uh, but wanted to make sure we got this one in because we uh, are continuing a run of really good guests in mm -hmm. addition to you and I being on, on the mics here in the virtual recording studio. Today, we are excited to have on the program Martha Leg Miller and Chris, uh, you usually do the honors, so why don't you give us a little bit of background? I'd be shocked if any of our regular listenership doesn't know Martha, but we'll we'll do the the back and forth here for for those who may not. Martha Leg Miller is the Vice President of Public Policy and Regulatory Strategy at Fidelity Investments. Martha leads a team within the Corporate Affairs Department that is focused on aligning Fidelity solutions for customers and clients with the legal and regulatory frameworks to achieve them. Prior to joining Fidelity in September 2022, Martha was unanimously appointed as the first advocate for small business capital formation at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission in 2018. That group charged with identifying areas of action to improve how capital is raised by small businesses from startups to late stage private companies through the initial public offering process and by small cap public companies. Before serving at the SEC, Martha was a partner at the law firm of Balch & Bingham, representing companies and investors across a spectrum of corporate transactions. She holds bachelor's degrees in cognitive neuroscience and communication studies from Vanderbilt University and a Juris Doctorate degree from the Georgetown University Law Center. Martha, your academic clout may be the least impressive part of your very impressive bio, but uh, we're glad to have you. Welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, Chris and Kurt. I'm delighted to be joining you today. This is definitely our first specialist in cognitive neuroscience who has joined the, the podcast. We may, we may do a little bit of un unpacking on that as we get through some of our topics today. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, I'm a little intimidated by that fact. I'm afraid maybe you know what I'm going to say before I do, but we'll just see how the recording goes. <laughs> All right. So for our listeners out there, I want to just 
set a baseline, Martha. As we mentioned, you were the the director of the Office of the Advocate for Small Business Capital Formation while you were at the SEC. High level, what is the office? What does the office do? What is the mission? Absolutely. I'm delighted to get a chance to talk about the office that I left almost two years ago coming up this spring. The office was created by Congress at the very end of the Obama administration to elevate the voices of entrepreneurs and their investors who are growing companies using our capital markets. Um, Capital formation had developed a little bit of a reputation in the years preceding that as the forgotten third leg, so to speak, of the SEC's tripartite mission. And so Congress decided to give the office a superpower of sorts, which was reporting to the entire commission, which no one else does outside of the inspector general, including the investor advocate. So it was this really fascinating new beast that Congress charged the SEC with standing up Hill Insiders told me that apparently the office started out with the shorter title of just Advocate for Capital Formation. But as I think you know well, covering D.C. and the SEC, Congress likes to add words, to add votes for bills. And so they tacked small business onto the title of the bill. And that made it just sound fantastic, apparently, to the members of Congress. And it (laughs) sailed through. But they kept the IPO pipeline and small cap companies in scope. So far beyond small business, yet still small relative to the scale of the entities that the SEC is well known for regulating. Well, like many of the SEC's divisions and offices, Martha, the Office of the Advocate for Small Business Capital Formation produces an annual report, right, Kurt? You and I love when we get to maybe sit back a little bit on our planning and think about what annual reports are coming up we can talk about on the podcast. So the the Office of the Advocate for Small Business Cap Formation uh, talks about the state of capital formation, the office's specific policy recommendations, as well as the office's advocacy efforts. So talk to us a little bit more about that annual report and and how it may be a little different from some of the other reports we get out of the SEC. Yeah, absolutely. And and the report actually for 2023 just came out. It's one of those lovely required as of December 31st. So I left Mm. law firm world where you have to close everything by December 31st. (laughs) And I went to the government where you have to deliver everything to Congress by December 31st. But that report is intended as a body of work that is going to include recommendations from the office around how to improve the capital raising landscape. It's supposed to be prepared independently of the commission, which means that nobody gets to see it first besides the team that's working on the design. So that that's that's a little bit of a dangerous tool to have mm-hmm. in potentially the wrong hands. And I think it scared a lot of folks, the idea that somebody was going to be prepping a report that knew all the ins and outs of what was happening within the commission. And it was going to go to the Hill before it went around the 10th floor. So I had a choice to make and how to use the report. So I could either induce sleep via two-column Times New Roman, which is, that's option A, very popular (laughs) among reports that are delivered to Congress. Option B, I could name and shame under the guise of independence, and I could poke at the failures of the SEC and Congress to support capital formation. Or C, I could actually be useful. So A sounded like a waste of time. I just did not want to produce another Times New Roman report. B was a surefire way to alienate people instead of actually advocate. So that left me with C, doing something good. So I think we have to step back, though, around why in the world the report was needed, because that's the question we started asking ourselves, which was, okay, Congress said create a report. And sometimes they do that as an accountability mechanism. But we thought, mm-hmm. hmm, this actually could be a really powerful tool 
if we can use it to illuminate more of what's really happening. And one of the things that was abundantly clear to me coming into the SEC and became even more clear through the engagement that our office did over that first year and the years that followed was we underestimate how dependent we are on new companies being continually formed not just for the vibrancy of our markets, but for innovation and job creation. And our, our staff used to love to replay a John Oliver. I don't know if you watched last week tonight with John Oliver. Big fan. Big, okay. Love his humor. Fantastic. <laughs> but he had this video montage of politicians of every stripe stumping with the same quote, small businesses are the backbone of our economy. And it's comical, but there's a reason that both sides love saying that. And that's because it's true. And when we make policy, it's just so easy to miss the forest for the trees and then to miss the trees that matter. And my old office had a whole running joke about the analogy of the week. I sometimes took them down deep dives on neuroscience. I won't do that with you today. I this think one you have to now. You can't tease us no, like this, that. No, this, one is even, this, one's even, <laughs> this one's even weirder than neuroscience. This one is ecology of forests. And that's what I'm reading right now. Got it. But, but here's the deal. When we look out at a forest... We tend to stand at all of the giant redwoods and the towering oaks. And if you were to judge the health of the forest based solely on the biggest trees among you, you're missing the most critical element, which is the multitude of seedlings and new growth that ensure the forest longevity. Do only a fraction of the seedlings make it? Absolutely. Some aren't strong enough. Some don't find the right soil and some are eaten. Um, but without them, the forest dies. And that's the same thing with our capital markets. And that's the story that we needed to tell. Um, and it is no coincidence that the front cover of that first report had a very poetic small seedling growing at the base of a giant moss-covered tree. So that's, that's, in a nutshell, how we try to use that report to make it different. And oh my gosh, if you haven't read it, and if you're a listener of this, if you're taking the time to listen to it, my goodness, take the time to look at that report because it's not only interesting, but it's beautiful. And it is filled with more data and information to empower good decision-making on capital raising activity than any other resource out there, including novel data that we would get the SEC's Division of Economic and Risk Analysis to prepare for us. So it is fantastic. I think it is the best report that Congress receives each year. Yes, I'm biased, but yes, I still think it's the best report they receive every single year. That's a long-winded answer, but I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm just, I think, Kurt, we got to do an analysis of the covers of reports because, you right. know, insert judging a book by its cover here, right? You're you're telling a whole story there ecologically, <laughs> you know, oh, you're, yeah. you're using that, uh, you know, those cues in my brain to start thinking differently about it. Uh, I'm interested in some of the more, we'll say, rote reports that the SEC puts out. I wonder what their title pages are are considering in their design. Uh, there's, there is some real fun that you can have with that, wondering like, <laughs> what message does that send? Huh. That's right. <laughs> I will say that the reports are are beautiful and, and very well done. I, I have to agree with you there. I've gone back and flipped through some of them over the last couple of weeks, and a few things jumped out at me. I mean, one is they've continued your your trend or your vision of making it a, a useful report. I I love how long they are actually, which isn't something you would often hear. Right? They're between like ninety five and one hundred and twenty yeah. pages, and I can I'll flag that because I've complained publicly on this show several times about how short the SEC's Enforcement Division's annual reports are now. They're like six-page press releases, mm -hmm. right? Whereas what we're getting from your former office is really useful. But even though it's long, the use of graphics is incredible. You can actually flip through it 
pretty quickly and get a visual idea of of what's going on in the capital formation space with small businesses, you know, things of that nature. If if you didn't want to read every word, you can walk away with the I, I think some of the themes yeah. that you that you want to come through. Well, that's that's unless you're a, you know an accountant like Chris, you don't generally look at an Excel spreadsheet of numbers and see the trend. <laughs> you know, we evolved to like you spot the bush that's jiggling out in the plains, and you know that's where the animal is. We're visual people, and so we've got to make some of these trends and this data more engaging and more visual, and not hope someone finds the number that's the anomaly in a table. My goodness, well, no more tables. You I should see some of Chris's charts. <laughs> no, no, you should see some of Chris's charts. When we have our production meetings, somehow, you know, week after week, year after year, he manages to make our downloads and listeners keep going up. And I don't know if that's like the power line or what, you know, function he's using, but it works. Alleging what? listener smoothing here, Kurt, is I have to take this up in, in some kind of kangaroo court. Yeah. But since you since you are sort of the visionary behind these reports, I know you still read them closely and you look for, you know, changes in tone or trends, perhaps. And just, you know, the, the 18 months is it only one report since since you've been out or are there two? Two. Two. OK. Uh, and that there were, in fact, a few things in the annual report for fiscal year 2023 that jumped out at you. And so we wanted to walk through a couple of those that you flagged for us when we were preparing for the episode. So the first was, according to the report, 90% of new businesses need capital at the start, right? Not everybody has a war chest and they're just off to the races. When we think about sources of capital, and those could be loans, those could be seed capital, those could be private placements, it could be angel investors, you know, whatever it may be. There has been a significant drop in volume or in deal volume across the board. So I guess I'm wondering what factors are leading to this drop in deal activity, and do you think there's going to be any knock-on effects for IP for the IPO pipeline or for innovation generally among businesses? What do, might it mean for job growth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit on it with the war chest comment. It is it is the exception, not the rule, that a company and its founders don't need external funds to start and grow a business. I mean. Nine out of 10 businesses need an external infusion of capital to create something meaningful. And the interest rate and inflation and geopolitical environment and a whole lot of, of different factors have really hurt businesses of all sizes, even those without capital raising needs. So I'm going to keep this forest analogy going for you guys, okay? So if we're thinking about this seed, then angel, and then venture, and then exit ecosystem, what we're looking at and some of these downstream numbers and showing this precipitous decline in earlier stage capital raising is something that we saw happening about a year and a half to two years ago. And it's really the downstream symptoms of a lot of upstream challenges in the market. So with very few exceptions, secondary market liquidity is quite limited in the private markets, which means that investors in private companies are locking their capital up until that company exits. In other words, it's acquired by somebody else or it goes public or that company winds up drifting off into um, what VCs love to call zombie land um, and winds up just written off. And so the funds that are in the private market are highly recycled. And returns from successful exits flow back up from those funds. They get paid back out to the LPs. And then those LPs reallocate it to new funds. They might go back and form a new fund with that same GP, or they might go put it towards something else. But when that exit ramp starts to slow 
or to stall, deal flow piles up earlier stage. And so we're seeing kind of broad scale effects of challenges with later stage deal making activity that is now that that tail is coming around and starting to really hurt earlier stage companies. Yeah, you you mentioned this sort of progression or growth from seed to angel to venture to exit. And it's another thing that was that was flagged in the report. And that is that there was a dramatic drop or there has been rather a dramatic drop in VC exits since the year 2021. According to the report, US VC exit value declined 90% year over year in 2022. I mean, what's going on there? This seems like it. We're we're hearing something loud and clear about the ecosystem, but I'm not sure what the causes might be. Yeah, the the numbers are a little bit jarring, Kurt. When you look at the the trend lines and the precipitous drop. I mean, exchange listed IPOs in the 2022 time period that the team measured dropped to the lowest number since the financial crisis, which is really problematic from the broader kind of vibrancy of our IPO market. I mean, the press keeps calling it a lackluster year for IPO, which in paint terms just kind of means like it's it's there, but it's not much to look at. So my former office's report really corrects a lot of the mythology that we've seen around this linear seed to angel to VC to IPO pathway for raising capital. And the numbers that they show in the report prove that far more companies are exiting via acquisition than public offering. So if we're just measuring the success of the private markets by exits in IPO numbers, we're missing the big picture, which is that a significant portion of exits are now acquisitions by public companies. So you have companies now that are functionally going public by becoming a part of an existing public company, which accounts for a lot of the growth in overall market cap that we're seeing. But the exits, even there on the acquisition front, have stalled out too, thanks to some of those same macro environmental challenges and economic challenges around interest rate environment, availability of capital. And so it's this this vicious cycle where when something goes wrong in one place, that feedback loop gets messed up elsewhere in the market. So I have to ask you, and I know we didn't talk about this in in prepping, but I'm curious where you think SPACs fit into the ecosystem here, right? Because for, for a moment in time, maybe, this was a popular way for some of these companies, late stage companies to get acquired. It was a way to get around the IPO process, which is you know, can be long and very expensive, but that market seems like it's dried up a little bit. So if we're still seeing, you know, tons of acquisitions through which companies are, you know, being acquired or going public, I mean, is there less of that because of what's happened with SPACs or, or how should I think about these different moving pieces? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you go and look at the report, there's actually some really interesting um, call outs on SPACs in particular, showing where there was that spike in activity and actually measuring where it is an operating company going public versus a SPAC that's out there as a blank shell looking to acquire something. That trend line functionally dropped off and we're not seeing nearly the same level of SPAC activity. But yeah, it, it definitely skewed the numbers. But even if you take that out, IPO activity is still significant significantly below. Interesting. Yeah. And are there other kind of, well, I'll use the phrase non-traditional means uh, of capital capital raising now for those small businesses, maybe that don't see an exit coming or, or haven't gotten an interested buyer? Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a great question. I mean, the short answer is yes. The long answer is it depends on your network mm -hmm. and it depends a lot on who you know because so much of success 
in the private markets is network dependent. So I actually, Chris, I want to answer a slightly different variant on that question, which That's is what really Kurt usually does. So I love this. Ahead. This is this is this is a solid lawyer move, which is I'm going to answer a different, <laughs> different question yeah. than you asked me. And I'm going to hope you don't call me out. <laughs> so before you start looking for capital, you've got to know the lingo and the basics of capital raising regulation, and you got to know what the rules are. And you've hyped on this podcast and had fantastic guests that have talked about investor.gov. But there is another resource that I have not heard hyped on this podcast, but I uh -oh. want to hear some more references built in in the future, which is sec.gov slash small business, which has a wealth of resources, including a glossary that we developed to cut through jargon that we started getting pulled aside by SEC staff in divisions saying they were using it during meetings or when reviewing rulemakings to understand the jargon that was being used by their other colleagues. That's how hard it is to speak the lingo of securities law. And I'm a big believer that lawyers and accountants play an incredibly valuable role in capital raising, but it should be for the value additive work, not for the fundamentals. And so Equally as critical to where you go look for the money is knowing the language of how people talk about money, what those terms mean, what is somebody talking about with a preferred return? What do they mean when they're talking about a down round? And being able to look to a fantastic resource that we've put together. And it's, I mean, it's one of the best things out there, www.sec.gov slash small business. And there's a ton there. Go look at it. If you're listening, it's fantastic. And they have continued building it out and making it even better. Well, Kurt, we I think our, our listenership's going to plummet now that everyone knows where to go to get the answers instead of listening to us talk about our acronyms. <laughs> right. There's a reason we haven't mentioned it, right? No. I think we know some folks that can maybe slide that into the uh, show notes just to make sure folks know where to go. <sighs> Excellent. Well, Martha, you talked a little bit about the IPO pipeline earlier in our discussion. Is is that a trend that's influenced by uh, you know the costs of going public and then therefore the costs of of being a public company? That's something we hear about almost constantly from the financial media about the the costs of of going public. Yeah, the report highlighted a jaw dropping statistic, and it's one that I hadn't seen until reading the report, which was that total compliance costs for a medium sized public company now range from between two and just over 6% of market cap. And a lot of those are fixed cost, which cuts mm -hmm. into valuable capital. So yeah, it's it's not inconsequential. Now there's a debate to be had about whether or not the you know the investment that you make into all of those different compliance related functions creates value. And that's not one that I think I can debate both sides of that. But I think that when we're looking at the cost, particularly for smaller entities, it eats into an outsized portion of the money that they have for salaries, for research and development budget, and, you know, growth. I'm curious what you two think about it, though. Can I turn the, can I turn the table around and interview you two? What do you think about what's happening there? I'll give a short answer, Kurt, and then you can give a longer one. You know, accountants <laughs> and auditors, right, always take a lot of flack for the fees that are charged related to the requirements of being a public company. I see a lot more value being provided to the market based on that relationship than obviously any individual company that has to gripe about, you know, the, the complying with gap or whatever framework they're with. So to me, it's not really about the ROI from the ownership group of a business going public. It's more, can this business be viewed in the market in a meaningful, comparable, consistent, and, and, you know, a way that, you know, provides some, some truth, right, to the numbers that are being presented. So I think the accountants on this one, Kurt, from a compliance perspective, have a little easier 
right? And arguing for for the costs that are incurred and, and how they can be viewed in the market. Yeah, I mean, look, so I, I don't do M&A work. I'm not a, a deals lawyer, or a corporate transactional attorney. So I'm not in the trenches helping companies go public. But I do hear a lot about the cost of compliance, right? Whether that is a financial services firm that's trying to come to terms with some new rule or regulation that's been put in place or public companies that are grappling with, I think this, I don't know, ever changing, ever more challenging regulatory landscape, right? How, how do we pay for this and that? And I, and I think back to like when we had Commissioner Ueda on a few episodes ago, wow, it's been more than a few episodes now, but he mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the overlapping nature of some of the new rules and regs that are coming out of the SEC and how maybe we need to think more holistically about how they interact with one another. So I have no doubt that paying for compliance eats up a, a meaningful uh, percentage of, of companies' capital. Unfortunately, it's like a cost of doing business right now, but yeah. that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about whether that is right-sized. I want to put a pen in yeah. that overlapping requirements note. I want us to come back to that one, Kurt, because that's a fantastic point. Yeah, well, no, please please run with it. I mean, my, my point is that we, we should be thinking about it, right? Instead of just saying, look, this is – this is a cost of doing business. People complain about that with enforcement all the time on my, like this, they'll say, well, some of these big companies, they just think about, you know, a $10 million charge as a cost of doing business. I, I can assure you, I don't have clients that think about it <laughs> quite like that, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe we shouldn't just accept that if there is a better way to think about some of these overlapping requirements and what that means, particularly for smaller companies that are trying to just operate in this space. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's looking at, whether or not there is an overall net benefit and what that net benefit looks like. Because, yeah, most everything that's good, including building a company, costs money. Compliance costs money. That's a a very, I think, worthwhile investment insofar as, to Chris, your point, it is driving at some sort of value, giving comparability and a tool to investors to understand and to be able to compare across companies and to get some sort of assurances that those numbers have some backing and somebody else has looked at them. So there's, yes, I can can go with both sides of this argument, but I do think that disproportionately some of the smaller cap companies struggle given the fixed costs there. And we heard it time and time again while I was at the SEC. Yeah, I know it's it's easy, right, to ask Kurt and I as practitioners in the space. You know, we're going to be biased towards one answer or another. You know, I'm here recording in my basement, and Kurt, you said you you had to make a move today during the storm. You're you're currently recording live from your Ferrari, so a lot of the you know compliance costs and things may come into play. Uh, you know, for for our our biases, you got to keep the oil changed in the, in the Ferrari, of course. <laughs> okay. Just the cost of driving. We used to measure my value in 0.1 hour increments. I can appreciate, I can appreciate that argument. And I do believe very much so in the value that the JDs and the CPAs bring to the table, just mm-hmm. in moderation. <laughs> I'm sure you missed those 0.1 days. You know, they're, they're as good as you remember them. That's right. All right. One more topic on the annual report, and then we're going to shift gears a little bit. I mean, we've been talking about how the report is really good for spotting trends, but an element of that I think is a little bit backward looking, right? Like what ha- what's happened over the last year or the last couple of years. There's a big chunk of the report that I think is very much forward looking, and that is policy recommendations, the things that the office would recommend to you know folks on the Hill or folks on the 10th floor in terms of the types of rules or regs or guidance that need to be coming out. In the most recent edition of the annual report, it talked, the policy recommendations included things like access to educational resources, changes to rules governing private offerings, and supporting emerging fund managers. So I wonder, you know, 
what are some of the challenges that you or the office face when you're trying to get through some of these policy ideas or when you're trying to drive a new initiative and get maybe someone on the 10th floor to, to take an interest and, and maybe carry the water in some cases? Yeah, so I think there's some real beauty in the recommendations coming after such voluminous data because every single one of those every single one of those recommendations is footnoted with a C infra note, I mean, which is a lawyer's dream. The case has been built for why those recommendations make sense. I think one of the real challenges right now is that Chair Gensler's priorities are much more focused on market structure and market dynamics than they are on capital formation items. You know, Reg D is on the agenda, and there's certainly people that are pressuring Corp Fin to make changes there to look at accredited investor, but it's not top of mind. A lot of the things that I think the office would like to see happen right now. I think that the other thing that's that's almost a harder challenge to deal with right now is that there's this talking point floating around DC. And that is that the private markets have taken over the public markets and Reg D has surpassed IPOs. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how many people have really looked at the numbers, like actually looked at the numbers and the numbers are in the report. And what that report shows this year, which it shows time and time again, is that private funds raise almost 90% of the capital under Reg D. And then actual operating companies so the, the companies that we actually think of as businesses that are raising capital are only raising about 12% under Reg D. And so before somebody quotes that $2.7 trillion in private placements, I'd like for them to take an 88% haircut off the table and talk about the much smaller number that's actually being raised by actual businesses. And I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way, that private funds are raising the vast majority of capital because it's a signal that there's diversified exposure in the private markets, which is what we should be wanting for just about every single investor out there. And so focusing only also on IPOs, which was around $17 billion during last year's absolutely abysmal market, also misses the $1.1 trillion that was raised in registered offerings by issuers and the 8.8 trillion in registered inflows or in inflows for registered funds. So the public markets are thriving and they yeah. still dwarf the private markets. But we have this mythology that Reg D somehow has eclipsed the public markets and it hasn't. And the office is using the SEC's own offering data complemented with third-party data to make this case and to rebut some of those flawed assumptions that are underpinning the attacks on Reg D. I think that's the greatest challenge is bringing visibility to it and making sure that people are making policy decisions with sound data in front of them. Martha, you are a wonderful guest because you know how to transition perfectly from topic to topic as we move from the policy recommendations in the annual report. I'd love your take on SEC rulemaking. We talked a bit about kind of some of the overlapping issues that happen both with the rulemaking as well as, uh, you know, with some of the things we've talked about today. And you've really sat in two camps over the past 18 to 24 months, right? Both being at the commission as well as being on the outside. So talk to us a little bit about kind of how the sausage is made maybe in your time in the SEC and then what your thoughts are now that you're on the outside. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I think... I mean, one, I feel a lot of sympathy <laughs> seeing how much is happening right now. I mean, there's some people that are begrudging the SEC. I feel like this is one of those like phone a friend and just make sure everyone's doing okay. So it's wild. I mean, the rule writers that I worked with at the SEC are some of hands down the smartest lawyers I know. 
almost all of them could cash out and get a law firm salary that pays them multiples. Like the great rule writers would get paid way more to be out in the private markets and they're leaving cash on the table because they love what they're doing. And they take so much pride in what they're doing that one of my former colleagues used to answer the question about like, Oh, tell me about you. And she would say, Oh, I have a six year old and I have a three year old and I have a concept release. And that one took me more than nine months to make. And it feels like my third child. And we used to, I used to laugh when, when, <laughs> when she would say that. And then I realized like, that is true. She, that, and that one doesn't talk back. It's great. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, drafting rules, I will say this, drafting rules is wildly complicated. And I was not the drafter, but I did get the drafts and would sit down and work with all of those teams and try to take that big picture view and help figure out, like, are we asking the right questions? Do we have the right data? Have we reached the right conclusions? And have we gotten the right feedback from the public to enable us to put our best foot forward? I think right now, kind of getting back to, to Kurt, the comment that you're making about the overlapping nature of things that are happening from Commissioner Ueda's statements when he was on, drafting rules when someone else is drafting overlapping rules is wild and it makes no sense it's about like if you were to download a book on your kindle and as you're halfway through reading it the author is tweaking the plot and changing the character names like not george rr R. martin where you know each character gets three to four names but like it's just changing you go to the next chapter and all of a sudden you have this puzzling conflict of what's happening. It's gone from a beat tree to a murder mystery. It might still be a great book at the end of the day, <laughs> but it's what is happening. And that is just wild. I cannot imagine working in that environment. And I give kudos to those that are figuring it out and that are doing their very best, but it is really challenging. And now that I'm on the other side of the rulemaking process, I have a different lens through which I'm reading the proposals because the question is not, okay, how does the text on this page affect us? The question is, does this proposal even contemplate how this might affect our customers and clients? The most challenging part is not hmm. parsing the updates to look at what's written on the page, but to look at what's between the proverbial lines. So like, where are the unintended consequences? Or even worse, where are the intended but unwritten consequences. Hmm. And did the SEC have the data that they needed to assess the impact? Does it, does it make sense? Do we have the data that they don't have? And while long reading the text of a 300 or even a you know 1600 page rulemaking that comes out just before the holidays, that's the easiest step in reviewing it. It is so hard to figure out how this might actually practically work and what this is going to do for the ultimate end investor experience. I guess I, I want to follow up on that because I guess what is what is sort of the solution, right? So when we talked to Commissioner Ueda, he you know talked a little bit about you know the the role of DIRA and making sure that you know that section of of a rulemaking or a concept release isn't given short shrift, right? Because they can sometimes kind of see, uh, they can see the whole forest, which I know you, we're supposed to focus on the saplings, but for, yes. for, for purposes of this <laughs> the question. The seeds, Kurt, the yeah. seeds first, then the saplings. <laughs> but, you know, then there's also the, you know, the the comment period. And, and we've talked on the show before about how that, you know, shrank and now seems to be getting back to the normal length of comment periods. But, I mean, does that, does that do enough? Is that process adequate, do you think, for the staff to get the feedback and really think about what are some of the unintended consequences? How does 
how does the rule actually impact market participants? I think it's it's hard. You know, I'm I'm reminded of the the intense political dynamics that happen on rulemaking timelines that I had really no appreciation of before I arrived. And people started, you know, backdating. And then we have this amount of time and we need this window to go and review this. And we're not going to be able to move to this next stage. And so in an ideal world, if you're going to put out something that is completely novel and that is not dictated by Congress, there'd be a concept release. We've all but done away with a concept release because it functionally tacks on an entire year to the rulemaking process. So instead, we get proposals that have all of the different alternatives that you might normally see in a concept release and all of these questions that are intended to work within the APA and to solicit feedback from the public. But it's really hard to navigate that in the absence of the kinds of, you know, roundtables with affected participants and advanced feedback gathering so that what you put out there is the best foot forward in a proposal. And the timelines with which, you know, the SEC has to work and every single other agency are largely dictated by the, you know, every four year election of who gets to make the call on who the next SEC chair will be. And so you compress it. And functionally, very few SEC chairs have more than three years to affect their agenda. It's not a lot of time. And so it's it's really an impracticality challenge of how do you actually tackle a robust agenda with such a limited amount of time with somewhat, you know, for, for lack of a better frame, the fixed costs of time that you have to build in. So shaving off the comment window, terrible idea. That's not one of the places where you need to save. Sounds like a fun one because you don't technically have to give more than what 30 days but you get terrible feedback as a result and you get late feedback but you still have to take it into consideration so yeah it's a mess a shocking news breaking here the government that we operate under is imperfect for for a variety of different hot takes we'll be sure sure to put that at the top of the episode Martha, we've talked about rulemaking on the podcast a lot, and and you mentioned you have listened to a couple of our episodes. Thank you for being one of those listeners that get to juke the stats that I show Kurt in a beautiful graph, and Brett Redfern, Brett being the founder and CEO of the Panorama Financial Markets Advisory Group, as well as having previously served as the SEC's head of division in trading and markets, overlapping some of his time with you. We wanted to talk about that predictive data analytics rule proposal, which came out last summer. This rule, for those who haven't listened intently, we'd ask you to try. The rule would require broker dealers and investment advisors to take steps to address potential conflicts of interest associated with their use of predictive data analytics and to ensure that the firms are placing investors' interests ahead of their own. Both Brett and Professor Tierney count among the many critics of this proposal and uh, in fact, Brett cast doubt on the viability of the SEC approving this rule as proposed. Uh, Fidelity actually has filed a comment letter suggesting the SEC should withdraw this proposal. Martha, what do you think uh, comes next in, in this saga of predictive data analytics? Yeah. I'll say this. It's rare for Fidelity to say you have to withdraw it. We really try to play ball. I think the episode that you did with Brett was fantastic. I recommend to those listening, if you've made it this far in this episode, do go listen <laughs> to Brett's. His, he had a great take on it, and, and he was the expert behind the scenes on Reg BI. I think, in my view, we have three forces that were converging into a single rule that made it just unworkable. So the first, Reg BI, finalized under Chairman Clayton's leadership while I was at the SEC, and I, I didn't work on Reg BI, but... I was very familiar with the outcry at the time from the advocates that wanted to see a complete 
and, and really impractical elimination of conflicts by the SEC. And so it was all but inevitable that with a change in White House would be pressure to go and look back at Reg BI. Second thing is that the meme stock craze kicked off and scrutiny on how and whether the SEC was going to rein that in was just incredibly tense at the time. And I'll, I'll never forget the morning after the GameStop first day of meteoric trading. I got a call from one of my advisory committee members who said, are you watching this? There's no fundamentals. There's just emojis. There's talk of chicken tenders. What is happening? And I was sitting there thinking like emojis, chicken tenders, GameStop. I have a lot that I need to catch up on, but it was wild. And something needed to happen, and there was just pressure to do something. And I think the third thing mm -hmm. is artificial intelligence. It's not new, but we're really a year into a hype cycle that's got everyone's attention. And the SEC has reputational scars from failing to stop Bernie Madoff. And so they are trying to get ahead now of how bad actors could misuse AI because they can't afford to miss it. And so every single expert that I have talked to thinks that the SEC needs to either repropose or withdraw this rule because there is no viable path to finalize it based on the contents of what's in the proposal and then what's in the comment file. And so when you combine the, you know, the, the three forces of Reg BI meme stocks and AI, you've got a, a car collision that's functionally like the car is totaled on the side of the road. It is not fixable. Maybe there's some salvage parts for scrap, maybe, but it really has to be completely retooled to be something that actually works and doesn't harm investors in the process. Yeah, it's going to be hard to just forget it altogether, though. Maybe they have to repropose, but that's like a talking points trifecta right there. Yeah. If, you, if you just think about the issues at, at play that you've flagged. Yeah. I want to hit one more rulemaking proposal while we've got you. This one dates back to your time at the commission, and that is the climate risk disclosure rule, which was uh, released in March 2022. Quickly, the proposed rule changes would require companies to include certain climate-related disclosures in their SEC filings. The information would include climate-related risks that have a material impact on their business, results of operations, or financial conditions, as well as certain climate-related financial statement metrics in a note to their audited financial statements. A lot of people expected this rule to be done by now. It's been floating around for a very long time. And we keep hearing rumors like, well, it's going to be this quarter. It's going to be next quarter. It's going to, you know, it's going to be whenever it's going to be. And it hasn't happened yet. So I guess I wonder, do you have a sense of how this is going to play out? When are we going to get a final rule? What's it going to look like? I mean, what are your thoughts on the um, climate risk disclosure rule? You know, I, having seen just how fraught with debate it was getting the proposal drafted and just how much negotiation, I mean, my office was fiercely negotiating to make sure that there were, you know, delayed and scaled compliance obligations for smaller companies. I, I know how much that was a challenge. Getting it to a final state is even harder. You know, Chair Gensler knows that he does not have a chance at commissioner's purse or EATA voting. And he can't put this final rule on the calendar without a guaranteed support from Commissioners Crenshaw and Lazarga. He can't. And SEC staff and the writers and general counsel's office are all still a little bit scarred from the conflicts mineral rule overturn after the 2016 elections using the Congressional Review Act. And with the DOL's ESG rule getting overturned a year ago using that measure, 
No agency really wants to take chances of this getting within the 60-day legislative window before a new Congress convenes next January. So they've got to do it by next summer. Everyone expected it to be last quarter. (laughs) I, I think we are getting close to that window where we will see something. It will come out. The question is what happens to scope three and where do they get comfortable? Well, Martha, I know that we could talk to you about all of the issues around small business capital formation, about your, the policies uh, that you're thinking about and considering at Fidelity, about the cognitive neuroscience and communications background that you've got at a, a pretty prestigious institute at Vanderbilt. So I'm not going to be able to predict when, but I can probably say we're going to have you back on to explore some, if not all of those ideas on future episodes of the podcast. It would be a delight. I think we're going to have to book a little bit a little bit more time than we did for today. We've got a little bit too much that we could cover. It's going to be like an eight-hour deposition. We're going to get it all together. So, Martha, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, and, and we look forward to, to more uh, of these things we've talked about developing in the market and getting your take in the future. Hey, thank you both. This is a wonderful podcast, and I'm honored to have joined you today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Martha Legmiller of Fidelity Investments. We always love to hear from you, our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.